0: We have the Gospel of John open these weeks in January of 2021 with personal and urgent questions. If the Bible's not good for January 2021 in America, then what faith are we professing, church? There's hardly a new experience in history, yet when it's our experience, when it's our turn, it's entirely new and urgent. We're not the first generation troubled by truth or the lack thereof. How do we practice truth? Truthful living in a world that nurtures us 1,000 different self-motivated directions. Where is Jesus in our commitment to live and practice truth? Today, we invite your attention towards Dr. Maury Jackson, Associate Professor here at Lossier University in the HMS Richards Divinity School. Maury and Marlene are members of this congregation. Most often, we hear Maury preaching at our 9 a.m. liturgical service. I invite you to reach for a Bible now and open to John chapter 8.
1: Listen to the word of God in John chapter 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are indeed doing what your father does. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not from God, the Word of God. Greetings, church family. It has been about a year since I have been graced to share with you. And once again, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If an overactive mind, a hypercritical mind is the devil's workshop, then his first century Palestine factory happened to be the size of Judea's entire territory. In the devil's territory, neutrality goes out of the window. In this space, everyone becomes suspicious of all reports they receive. You can be suspicious, but you can't be neutral. John's gospel makes this clear through his use of heavy dualism, light and darkness, above and below, spirit and flesh, heaven and world, life and death, truth, and lie. No surprise then that this morning's passage piles on the name calling. Anyone desiring neutrality finds cause to abandon the uncomfortable search for truth when they read John chapter 8. Dismiss this search. Point out that there is enough blame to go around. Point out that name calling takes place on both sides. Point out that we need to move on and heal the divide of all people, Jesus, who should know better. In verse 44, begin the name-calling. Listen to his words. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose your father's desires. His antagonist, whom the evangelist coldly groups together as the Jews, respond, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus defends himself in verse 49, I do not have a demon, to which the Jewish antagonists respond, now we know that you have a demon, the Jewish antagonists. In a polarized world, silent, sympathetic allies share the blame of walking in untruth. How did Judean leaders get there? How did they get to the place where threatening to ignore Roman law to which they fell subject? They terrorize a woman caught in adultery earlier in the passage, pretending that they had the authority to stone her. How did they get to the place where they claim we are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone? I thought they descended from people who were also enslaved in Egypt, captives of Babylonia. And now they live under Roman occupation. How did they get to the place where a discussion about the truth turned into a violent plot to kill Jesus? What made them slip from agreement about Abraham's parentage to disagreement about their history of bondage and now to demonizing language and stone throwing ambitions? Israel's people unearthed their life story in light of a shared history and tradition. The Bible's pages litter evidence throughout about a contest over how to shape the tradition. The northern kingdom told its stories. It also took the national name. The southern kingdom told its stories. It took the Davidic dynasty. And so the contested tradition continued into Jesus' day. Shaping a tradition becomes difficult when you draw from trivial facts or when you create alternative facts. It forces one to make tortured, chaotic moves in reasoning. Which tradition is the true one? What becomes the most important criteria in deciding the question? To quote in revise an aphorism from Samuel Coleridge, He who begins by loving Judaism better than truth will proceed by loving his own sect better than Judaism and end loving himself better than all. Traditions are necessary, and while they are necessary, some also justify our walking in untruth. The sectarians of first century Judea raided the treasured resources of their tradition, stealing from it in order to boost their partisan agendas. It made them feel powerful. It consoled them when the tide of consensus moved against them. It absolved them when they raged, throwing stones, threatening lives, and transmitting slurs and libels. To revise the words of another author, the problem was that all too many Jewish leaders were in the grips of two sets of lies. The enabling lies and the activating lies. And unless you deal with the enabling lies, the activating lies will constantly pollute the body politic and continue to spawn violent unrest. The enabling lie is the lie that makes you fertile ground for the activating lie that actually motivates a person to violence. In the world that John writes about, the tradition of Abraham by this time found a plethora of maps. Imagine having to decide which map to use during the Hebrew children's wilderness wanderings. Pharisees created one map. Sadducees created another map. Essenes created a third. And the Zealots, they cared less about map making and more about trail blazing and storm trooping. When a Sadducee saw a map created by the Pharisees, he dismissed it, fake map, funded by complicit Herodian lobbyists. When Pharisees saw maps made by Essenes, they scorned, fake map, straight from wacky conspiracy theorists. When an Essene saw maps designed by Sadducees, he shelved it, fake map, initiated by Pilate's Jewish subversion campaign funds. Imagine trying to decide which map to use in order to get to the promised land. In this environment, one is tempted to become cynical of leadership. In this environment, one is tempted to insist, I have a right to my own map design. Forget Abraham, forget Moses, forget the prophets, forget Judaism. In the end, it becomes all about me, my ideas my facts, my truth. The world of first century Judea found the Hebrew children wandering, not in order to get to the promised land, but wandering within the promised land that had now become the devil's workshop. Preachers at time wished the gospel commission permitted them to simply retell the story of Jesus. They wish it afforded them to only talk about the first century without comment on the 21st century. They wish passing on the good news heralded in the past avoided remarks on bad news hiding in the present. After all, can't we just talk about God's grace, Christ's redemption, heaven's future, and stay silent about our pantries, our personal lives, and our political leanings? The simple answer is, no, we cannot. We cannot because the gospel proclaims not a martyred hero, but a resurrected, living and reigning Lord. Christ is not only Lord of the church, he is also Lord of the world. And as the world lives on, so too does its living Lord. So we must look for signs Signs of his life-giving work today. Christian faith can't be idle nor lazy, and it's not neutral. My parents warned me that an idle mind was the devil's workshop. But in light of recent events, I give a different warning to my children. The devil's new factory labors in a hyper-critical, overly suspicious mind. How did we get here? How did we get to the place where managing an epidemic becomes managing an infodemic? How did we get to the place where constituents in Florida believe an election in Arizona was stolen? Where senators in South Dakota and South Carolina believe that the election was not? and where video gamers across the nation show no confidence in the electoral process and don't even care about the results. What happened? What happened to our agreed upon measures of deciding what is true and what is false? How did we slip from an agreement upon actual facts to a disagreement about alleged facts and now to the language of alternative facts? The issue of truth is beyond facts. Facts are true, and truth is factual, but the devil sets up shop in the link between the two. When I say facts are true, I mean, facts are facts. (laughs) They are what they are. The problem lies in determining significant facts from insignificant ones. Take, for example, a map. If you want the most accurate map of the universe, then you need one the size of the universe. But a map the size of the universe provides useless, and it proves to be useless. It can't chart a course, it can't guide a journey, it can't steer a direction. Finding a handy map requires finding one that renders significant facts about the terrain. Maps organize facts but they do so only enough to guide a traveler on a set journey. So the relationship between truth and facts creates a paradox. In the same way that facts are facts, truth is truth. Truth sketches or outlines a plot. But it does so only enough to give one the ability to select noteworthy facts from petty Trivia. If I study history and believe it's impossible for anyone to return from the dead, then supposed accounts that claim resurrection I judge as petty trivia and not historical fact. But if I believe that in fact one did rise from the dead, then credible resurrection accounts in history become noteworthy facts for the story. So we need truth to aid our fact-finding. We don't gather facts and then find the truth. Facts don't make the truth. However, the truth is factual. For Christians, the outline that sketches what we believe to be the ultimate truth, the final truth, the real truth, we call it the tradition of the apostles. It guides us. This tradition frames and steers our way, it charts our course, it directs our actions. Christians join the apostolic tradition with other traditions, because not only the apostolic tradition guides us, but other traditions aid us in other journeys, like democracy. The recent mob attacks on the nation's capital troubles Christian conscience because it represents a conflict between two preciously held traditions, democracy and Christianity. What story shapes our understanding of democratic tradition? Are democracies the best moral institutions humanly available that arrange social life while growing each other through vigorous good faith debate? Or are democracies social veneers that mark a transparent line between a facade of social order and a faction threatening, always threatening violent revolution. More important than the democratic tradition are what stories shape our understanding of Christian tradition. Not just our small recent denominational traditions, but the longstanding witness to the risen Christ. To more accurately quote Coleridge's aphorism, he who begins by loving Christianity more than truth will proceed by loving his own sect better than Christianity and end by loving himself better than all. Traditions are necessary, but some traditions also justify our walking in untruth. Some traditions feed a spirituality of uncertainty which then organizes facts in routes that avoid truth, when trivial facts lead us into untruth and join with the spirituality of certainty, then we find ourselves certainly false, blind to truth, emboldened by our feelings, cast iron in our assuredness. And it's at this point the quest for truth devolves into Power struggles over what kinds of knowledge should be given status, should be rewarded, should be passed on to the young. Hypercritical mind, be warned. It just might be laboring in the devil's workshop of deception. The good news in the gospel story is that Jesus came to recenter Abraham's tradition and share its blessings, its promised blessings for the world? The center of the tradition resides not in map making, not even in time charting, but in walking together in truth. Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' total commitment shows. That passing down the true tradition involves more than speech. It involves a life that's totally committed. Rather than map making, this story centers in meal planning. Bible students quickly learn that John's gospel is organized around seven signs of Jesus. Signs highlight those events that burst with fact worthy significance. Jesus' life becomes the central walking, the central talking, the central embodiment of what truth sounds like when it speaks, what truth looks like when it practices. In obedience to to Jesus' way, we learn how to organize facts and how traditions pass down in word and in walk. John writes Jesus' words, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Notice the language. Continue in my word. Truth and freedom. Truth lives. John sets this story of Jesus engagement with his Jewish opponents right in the context of the Jewish feast of tabernacles. This feast celebrated how God provided for the children of Israel during their wilderness wanderings. This feast celebrated the giving of the law, God's guiding wisdom benchmark on human conduct. This feast became an annual reminder that God's children remain pilgrims in this world, remain travelers, remain on the way. It reminded the people not to drive their stakes too deep into the soil as they pitched their tents, because they were people on the move. This feast required Judah's people to get out of their stone-hewn foundation set, elaborately designed comfort dwellings, and to live in the discomfort of Bedouin tent life. This feast served to bring the culture under the deception of security and certainty back to a culture under the truth of a spirituality of uncertainty. In those tents, they remember that God provides for their needs. In those tents, they sing the hymns of their ancestors. In those tents, they listen to the voice of their prophets. Says the Lord, if you return to me, if you remove your abominations from your presence and from my presence, and do not waver. And if you swear as the Lord lives, but you do so in truth, in justice, and in uprightness, then nations shall be blessed by him. By John inserting this story in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's his unsubtle way to tell the reader hear the sayings of Jesus, see the signs of Christ, feel the heart of Christ, but do it in the light of a God who tabernacles with us. This feast not only reminds the people of Israel about their wilderness wanderings, it also reassures them that just as God wandered with them in the wilderness, God wanders with them in the concrete jungle of a Roman-occupied Jerusalem. And so John the evangelist, who hints the only one to hint to the time of Jesus' birth, connects the Feast of Tabernacles in our story with the Christ born in the manger story. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt took up temporary residence, tabernacled with us. Jesus invades the devil's workshop and frees his people with truth. The uncertainty rediscovered in a tent-dwelling feast grounds the spirituality, the only spirituality that helps us not only know the truth, but also walk in truth. An annual meal that invites the community to eat more and speak less, to remember their humble beginnings and to become like those dependent only on God. This meal becomes the occasion where Christ reveals himself as the truth. Another author Simone Vey wrote, and I loosely quote, that God wants us to love truth more than Christ because he knows that when we find it, we will walk right into the arms of Jesus. You may have heard the saying, a lie gets halfway around the world while truth is putting its shoes on. That's because to spread a lie, you only need word of mouth. But truth requires more than lip service. It requires action. One walks in truth. Truth is word and walk. Some Christians wish the gospel message commissioned them to simply talk the story of Jesus without actually walking the walk. They wish the tradition of passing on the good news was only about signs that say Jesus saved. They see no trouble holding these signs as they violently storm the Capitol building. After all, can't we just talk about God's grace, Christ's redemption, heaven's future, and stay out of the areas of my pantry, my private life, and my political leanings? Well, the simple answer is no, we cannot. We cannot because... The tradition of the apostles of Christ invokes the way of peace. We cannot because the gospel tells not of a martyred hero, but of a resurrected, living and reigning Lord. That same reigning Lord continues to be proclaimed in our world. He is proclaimed in the words we preach and teach. He is proclaimed in the ways we walk and live. And he is also proclaimed through the feasts that Christians have celebrated throughout the year marked by their calendar. The church Christianized the Feast of Tabernacles. It celebrates in its place the Feast of Epiphany. This feast celebrates the manifestation of God in Christ. The history of Epiphany is much more complex than a simple replacement or appropriation of a wonderful Jewish festival yet and still it like all the christian feasts that celebrate the year the feast of advent and pentecost easter and lent christmas and epiphany they all remind us that traditions are passed down in ways not only through spo- spoken word but they also passed down in ways through lived experience. We pass along a tradition when we live out the way of Christ. The Christ made manifest in the Feast of Epiphany presents himself, not as a cocky adult, one certain about his future, certain about his status, certain about what he knows. Rather, Christ of the Epiphany becomes manifest as a newborn, presented at the temple for circumcision, an infant receiving much-needed financial support from wealthy rulers, a young adult baptized at the Jordan, humbly waiting to receive a vocation from his heavenly father. And he did. God called him. God called him to proclaim the kingdom of peace God called him to live in peace. And God called him to do it even if it meant his own life would end in a violent death. The Feast of Epiphany, the very season we stand in the shadows of today, reminds us of the one who said, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The one who said that is the same one who embraced a journey that nurtured his spirituality, not in the midst of certainty, but in the midst of uncertainty. He chose a journey that taught him to depend upon the Father of us all. Today, let's purpose not to search out the facts in order to fill in the narrative of truth, to prove each other what to, to each other that we know what's true. Today let's stand in the shadow of Epiphany and hear our Christian vocation anew. Let's hear God call us not to find the facts, but to become the noteworthy facts, to become the ones that others look at, to know the truth about the community Christ created. Let's celebrate that God empowers us to live in such a way that we are God's signs making manifest that the story of Jesus is the story of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the truth that's proclaimed, the truth that's lived. Amen.